for the podcast viewers, we welcome you and uh, this evening we're going to conclude our series of studies on the first epistle of Peter and we're going to finish it up with chapter 5, verses 5 through 14. not know how I got on that slide there. That's way ahead of time. Because I was hitting the button and didn't know it. I do too know. I've entitled the lesson tonight, uh, Remaining Steadfast in the Faith Through Sufferings. This is really kind of a general theme that's been going on throughout this uh, brief letter from Peter. And I got the title mainly from uh, the ninth verse, which I want to kind of get out of line here just for a moment so we can see why. Because he talks about uh, resisting him, speaking of the devil, and being uh, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So uh, that kind of gives like I say, a theme that's running consistently through this passage and also throughout uh, the epistle of Peter. So we go back to verse 5 where we began the reading. And he says, Likewise, you young people, submit yourselves to the elders. If you uh, can recall from uh, our previous studies in this letter, uh, this... uh, theme of submission is also taught throughout the letter, throughout Peter's letter here. He talks about uh, submitting ourselves to God. He, he teaches on submitting ourselves to uh, the authorities of the land. He talks about uh, submitting, the wives submitting themselves to their husband and how the husband is supposed to uh, give his wife due honor as the weaker vessel and uh, as joint heirs in, uh, in the hope that we have uh, in life. And uh, then here, uh, and in the previous verses of this chapter, uh, the first four verses, he talked about the role of the elders, uh, ordained elders, and uh, how he doesn't use the word submit, but he talks about how they were supposed to be serve their duty willingly, not for filthy lucre or for, uh, for, uh, for money or anything like that, but it was supposed to be uh, that they were, they were to do it willingly, that they were to be shepherds of the flock, and that they were to guide and protect and lead those shepherds. Uh, those... Uh, the sheep of the flock. And to do that, then the elders had to be submit themselves to the will of God. God put the elders, put the, uh, put the office of the elders in the body of Christ. And so they had to submit themselves to the head who, who is being Christ and, and to His head, which is God. But... Uh, very much of this letter is about submission. And even to the younger people, we remember that he is preparing these people or he's equipping them to deal with the persecution 
and the trials that they were either enduring at that time or that they were about to endure. And perhaps that's no more important that we prepare people for those things than, than the younger people, those who are uh, younger babes in Christ or something like that. But he tells even then, he said, Submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive one to another. Submission. And be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud and He gives grace to the humble. Um, so we see in these verses that He said every one of us is supposed to have a submissive or a humble attitude. One toward the other. We need to uh, realize uh, you know, the Scripture teaches it's not wise to compare ourselves among ourselves. And one reason for that is we're all sinful. We all fall short. We all uh, need the blood of Christ to cleanse us from sin. And we know that John taught if we claim that we're without sin, then we're a liar and the truth is not in us. He was writing to Christians when he said that. Children of God. And... So we should all be submissive one to another or humble ourselves to a point of, of serving our brothers and sisters in Christ. And uh, to do that, we have to have a humble mind. We have to live with humility. And he tells us that uh, it's a necessity in God's eyes. He said, God resists the proud and uh, gives grace to the humble. slide behind there he says uh, in verse 6 he says therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time so the, mo the most important person that uh, we should uh, humble ourselves before is the one that we should have the most humility in, in uh, for him he said uh, under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time uh, as we just read, he's going to uh, resist the proud. He's going to exalt the humble. And uh, when we realize everything that God's done for us, it's, it's indescribable what He has done for us. But when we measure uh, as best we can His grace, His mercy, His gift of salvation, His... Uh, divine providence and the way that He takes care of not just us, but the way He takes care of all mankind. And He offered His grace, He offered His mercy to all mankind, he, to the sinner. And uh, when we consider that He gave His only begotten Son uh, as a sacrifice, uh, and that's the way that He found before the foundations of the world to deliver us from the bonds of Satan, to deliver us from the guilt of our sin, to deliver us from the penalty of sin, which is death. We cannot humble ourselves too much in His presence, which we are at all times. But 
it says if we will do that, it will cause us to have the right attitude that He can exalt us in due time. That was, is with a crown of glory. And uh, we, we note that He says in due time, well, there's only one person that sets that time, and that is God Himself. So that's just one more reason that we should humble ourselves before God. He said, uh, casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. If we haven't already considered enough tonight to know that He cares for you and I, then He says, uh, you know, not only should we humble ourselves and praise and honor Him because of His grace that we've described, His mercy, but it goes further than that. He hears our prayers. He allows us to come to Him through Jesus Christ, through our mediator, through our intercessor, to, uh, to speak to Him. Christ is our righteousness where we can uh, talk directly to God. And He accepts these prayers. Not only does He accept our prayers, but, but He answers those prayers. And He says, Casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. I don't know about y'all, but this is one lesson that has been so difficult for me to learn, and it's one of the most beneficial blessings that we have in God. You know, when we cast something away, we throw it away. Or when we cast a fishing line out, you know, we're, we're throwing that bait out there for the fish to retrieve. When we cast something into the, into the trash uh, or, or throw it out, uh, then we're leaving it there for uh, someone else. Or, uh, you know, we're, we're just throwing it away. We don't, we don't care about it anymore. And He wants us to put our, the, wor the Greek word that is uh, used in place of uh, casting there is one of uh, our care. It, is one, the care, I should have said, and not casting. The Greek word that he uses in care, it expresses a, an anxiousness about us. That's what, it, that's what he's talking about, or that's what the Greek word, one thing that it conveys. And he says, he cares for you. So why be anxious? Cast your cares, cast your concerns upon the Lord. Verse number 8, he said, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So we're to, uh, being sober, that means we have to be of a, of a clear mind. We have to uh, realize that not just the grace of God, but we have to realize the danger and the goal of our enemy, the devil. And we have to realize uh, how subtle he is and how powerful he is at the same time. He said, because your adversary walks about like a roaring lion. Well, he walks about and he creeps about and he uh, encroaches about until he attacks you, and that's when he roars. He doesn't roar before he attacks you. He doesn't warn you and, and alert you that he's coming 
when He's going to try to take your soul, when He's going to try to lead you astray, when He's going to try to get you to serve Him, when He's going to try to get you to please Him, to do, to live His ways, and to uh, trespass against God. That's Satan's goal. To help, help, to cause us to turn against God. So he says, speaking of this adversary, he says, resist him. Steadfast in the faith. In other words, we're, we're to be prepared, prepare ourselves as best we can ahead of time. We're to strengthen ourselves. We're to exercise uh, our spiritual minds discerning what is good and what is evil. And so when, when the time comes that the devil does attack us, we're to resist him. We're to have the weapon, the Word of God. That's what Jesus used to fight the devil when he was tempted there after fasting for 40 days. And we're, we're to... Uh, we're to be steadfast in the faith because of our knowledge of the Word of God, because of our knowledge of God, because of our knowledge of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And uh, we are prepared because we've exercised the use of His Word. We've, we've used it in our lives. We know that it works. We know that it's powerful. We know that we can withstand the devil. We know that we've overcome sin in our life, not only through the blood of Christ, but through the Word of God, which is profitable for doctrine and for reproof and correction and for instruction in righteousness. It's able to, it helps us to correct our pathways, to walk in that straight and narrow pathway that leads to life. And he said, knowing that, uh, to be steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. You know, when I, when I read about this and I know something about uh, the tribulation, the persecution that many of the early Christians had to endure, I ask myself, is my faith that strong? And then I look at Christians in today's world and I look at those brothers and sisters in Christ that we have in India and Nigeria and the religious persecution and the persecution of the government that they have to deal with. And I have to ask myself, is my faith strong enough that I can still remain faithful to God in the face of that kind of persecution, in the face of those kind of uh, trials and tribulations? But he says here, he says, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. First of all, that brotherhood, that includes uh, both genders. It includes all of our brothers and sisters in Christ worldwide. And, you know, when we consider that, and, and how can that be that we have the same sufferings? Well, one way we have is, you know, we're sitting over here living in a land of plenty that many people, and I'm sure many in Nigeria and, and Belize and India, they think, well, how blessed, how fortunate those people are 
to have such riches, to have such freedom, to have such uh, wonderful material blessings that don't exist for us. But yet, if we're not steadfast in the faith, all of these things, rather than being a blessing to us, they can be a detriment. They can be an obstacle. They will be an obstacle. They'll be a, a temptation. They'll be a source for uh, this roaring lion that is seeking to devour us. A source for him to tempt us with. He knows our weaknesses. We show what our weaknesses are by our life. He knows our weaknesses. And he will attempt to lure us away from God by using these blessings that we enjoy by finding them more valuable to our lives than denying ourselves of some of these material or earthly blessings, the lust of life, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, things that allure us, things that look fun for a season, and He'll attempt to lure us away for eternity using those things against us. So in some way we have temptations and trials that these other places in the world do not have. <clears throat> he says, But may the God of all grace, that's unmerited favor, the God of all grace, all grace, I mean, just the things we've discussed tonight, the blessings that we enjoy in the brotherhood, the blessings that we enjoy as as Sons and God, sons and daughters of God. How can we fathom just how how much favor we receive from the heavenly Father without deserving any of it? He said it was God. He said, "But may the God of all grace, who called us to His eternal glory by Jesus Christ Jesus." Um, so we see that it's God that called us. Well, how does God do that? God calls us. He calls His children. He calls the obedient through the gospel of Christ. It's the gospel that calls us. But God devised this plan of salvation again before the foundations of the world. And we talked about how can we fathom that someone would give not just their only begotten Son, but a Son who was perfect in every way in the sight of God. And a Son who saw and had Him and His Father were of one mind. And He came to seek and save that which is lost. And that's why God sent Him. To do just that. To save the lost and so how can we not honor and submit ourselves and and worship and give our dedicate our lives as a living sacrifice to a god to a heavenly father who first of all has adopted us into his family how can we not submit ourselves to him and serve him with all praise 
praise and glory and honor that we can muster up. But we want to do that according to what God says pleases Him. We want to do it according to uh, the written Word. He said He called us to His eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you have suffered for a while. Uh, Perfect, now that word again is not sinless, but it's complete. He provides us with everything that we need. Establish, strengthen, and settle you. So here we go back to that care. You know, these people, I'm not clear what kind of persecution they were having to endure or what kind of persecution was coming their way. I know uh, that this uh, letter was written at least as late, uh, or the earliest was written was the early 60s B.C. And Jerusalem was, was destroyed in, in 70 I mean, 60 A.D., not 60 B.C. And Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D. And Peter doesn't mention here, doesn't talk about the destruction of of Jerusalem and, and what was going to come their way. But he was writing to Jewish Christians, the dispersion. If you recall from the first chapter, he was writing to those that, Galatia, Bithynia, I believe Pontus was one of them. Five different Roman provinces. And uh, he was writing mainly to uh, the Jews who were outside of, outside of Judea. But uh, he said, after you've suffered a while, that uh, you, know, you will be able to have this, this perfection this faith, which, uh, uh, this knowledge, uh, this strengthening by the Word, to, which will make you complete. It will establish you. It will help you stand firm when you have to face Satan. It will strengthen you, and it will settle you. It will take that anxiousness, that care that you have about, you know, the... the persecution, whatever trials you're having to endure, uh, and the anxiousness that you get from those trials and that persecution. He said, if you've got the right kind of preparation, the right kind of humility, the right kind of of love uh, toward God and and toward your brethren, that you're going to have all of these things in this, this peace. And so he says in As a way of summing this up, he says, To Him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Why would we not want this Heavenly Father to have all dominion over us, to allow Him to have all control over us that that He could possibly have, and to have that forever and ever? You know, when we... Uh, reach heaven, we're not going to feel less compelled to serve God. We're going to feel more joyous to serve God. We're going to feel more fulfilled. We're going to have. We're going to see the fulfilling of all His love and all of His promises. 
And he says, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The prayer that uh, most people call the Lord's Prayer, but it's actually just a sample prayer that Jesus instructed people to pray when they asked him, well, teach us how to pray. And he, he finished that prayer in Matthew 6 and verse 13. He said, And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil, from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and power and glory forever. His is the kingdom. His is the kingdom that the Bible speaks of will never be destroyed. It will never be shaken, he said. And his is the kingdom. His, uh, he said, that that kingdom uh, he has is includes all power and all glory because of who built it and uh, who we serve. And in the King James Version, he said, uh, you know, that that was to be forever and forever. Amen. So now, as we come to uh, verse 12 of this letter, uh, this chapter, and closing out the letter, he gives his farewells and his goodbyes. And this includes, uh, in verse 12, he said, by Silvanus. I believe this is, uh, the person that the scripture also speaks of is Silas. And you can read a lot about uh, Silas uh, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 15 and Acts chapter 16. And he was obviously a close friend and companion and worker with the Apostle Paul. But at the time this letter was written, Paul was most likely in, in Roman prison. And so uh, perhaps... Uh, he sent uh, Silas or Silvanus to deliver this letter to this people in these uh, in these Roman provinces. He said, "By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God, in which you stand." You know, and, and that pretty much sums it up. Uh, he said, you know, I've written you to exhort and to, to, to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. And this is what's going to help you make it through all your trials and your tribulations, even make it through to the promised land in heaven. And this is what, this true grace of God is going to be what's going to make you strong enough to stand it, to stay strong, and to remain faithful. In verse 13 he said, She who is in Babylon, best I could figure out here, and from the remainder of this verse he says, Elect together with you, greet you, and so does Mark my son. Well, the commentaries I've read said that she who is in Babylon was possibly, and, and some say likely, his wife. And uh, Babylon was the chief 
uh, capital city of the Chaldeans, and it was along the Euphrates River, and it wasn't the uh, the town that it, it used to be in, in far more ancient times, but uh, he uses a, a greeting here that, you know, my family, uh, you, you know, he basically says, my family uh, greets you, my son and my son and my wife and myself, and the elect also, the, uh, the other, the rest of the elect. So he says, greet one another with a kiss of love. You know, uh, I think there's another place at the end of Romans where it talks about greeting one another with a with a something like a holy kiss or something like that in the Old King James. I don't know how it reads in the New King James, but uh, you know, this kiss of love. Different cultures, different places on earth, as you know, if you watch the news, if you if you learn your history and your social studies you know how in how in uh, the east and the mid-east how uh, much of the Arab countries they you know kiss each other on the cheek on both sides of the cheek the French have a similar uh, greeting uh, there are different kinds of greetings but uh, you know we do things as they do according to culture and so to show others the, I, I'm just thinking of a few of the ways that we can show others our love for them. How we greet one another with a kiss of love. The first thing would be when we meet each other on a regular basis, it should, and I'm the last one that should be saying this, but we should, it should cause us to greet each other with a smile because of our relationship. That we have together you know I, I smile when I see my brothers and my bloodline brothers and sister and uh, I miss the one that who has passed away but I have a hope of seeing her in heaven but uh, you know the first thing is let people know we're glad to see them you know a hug can do that doesn't have to be a kiss. A hug goes a long way toward us showing uh, our love. But it doesn't even have to be that. Some people are uncomfortable with hugging. And, you know, so we need to just show that we're, we're glad to see them, that we care for them. And there's many ways that we can show our brothers in Christ that we love them. And we should prefer one another as the Scriptures instruct us. We should love our brothers and our sisters with a pure heart fervently, not casually, fervently. And he closes with the words, Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. So be it. You know, he's told us through this letter, he told them through this letter how to be strong, how to be happy, how to be joyous, even in the face of of persecution and trials. So I hope that something here has been uh, like it is to me. It's been this has been a very encouraging lesson, uh, a very encouraging letter, and I believe that it it encouraged those people in these five Roman provinces that he 
wrote to. And he helped those who loved the Lord. He helped, just helped them stay faithful. He told them they had every reason to stay faithful. And the message is the same for you and I tonight. You know, but still, in spite of all of this, we still have our times when we need the help of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And one way that we can give them that, that kiss of love is to help them overcome the cares uh, that they are having trouble like I do often, and the cares ca- that I can't seem to cast away, can't seem to get rid of because my faith is not as strong as it should be. But people have helped me overcome some of those trials, some of the sins that I had trouble overcoming. They've helped me doing it because of the love that, that they had for me. And we would like to always offer an opportunity for those who need that kind of help or some other kind of help that we're not aware of. We want to live as brothers and sisters. We want to live as children of God. And we want to help you get to heaven and we want you to help us get to heaven. So if there's any way we can help you accomplish that, we'd encourage you to come as we sing the song that's been selected.